from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. When Angie Bastian studied the snack aisle in the grocery store, she noticed an important omission. No representation of women except for food geared towards weight loss. That led to a revelation. The decision to be loud and proud about celebrating the feminine. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor for CUNA News. This episode of the CUNA News Podcast features two keynote speakers from the 2021 CUNA Marketing and Business Development Council Conference, which takes place virtually March 23rd through the 25th. Bastion, the namesake of Angie's Boom Chicka Pop, transformed a garage popcorn business into one of the nation's fastest-growing brands of natural popcorn. She shares lessons in effective branding and how she cut through marketplace clutter with an emphasis on female leadership and empowerment. We also talked to Jean-Paul Gonzalez, a public speaker and motivator, about his philosophy of being all-in and the power of commitment. Here's Angie Bastian. Can you tell me a bit about your background? So I was a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and I was a, I was a nurse for about 28 years, and my husband was a school teacher. And you know, about 2001, I was working at the state hospital and the county clinics, and Dan was teaching school, and we had two small children, and just said, you know, we need to do something to put some money away for our kids' college fund. And um, my husband started looking at things, and he found this advertisement on the web that said, make thousands of dollars every weekend selling kettle corn. <laughs> and so... He, he said, what do you think about that? And I'm like, oh, I can, we can do kettle corn. And, and so we bought this equipment and um, it got shipped to our garage in Mankato, Minnesota. And um, we started popping kettle corn at fairs and festivals and amateur baseball and school events. And um, that's how it all got started. And, you know, I continued to work as a nurse until... 2000 and uh, I think it was 11 when we took private equity in and Dan worked until 2004 and then he jumped in full time and started building out the operations of the business while I did the sort of marketing on the side and did a little bit of the finance piece of it until we could get somebody who really knew how to do that on board and thank goodness because QuickBooks doesn't cut it (laughs) you know when you start growing fast. So that's sort of the origin story of it wasn't Boom Chicka Pop at the time. It was we just called it Angie's Kettle Corn and you know, we were an outdoor vendor popping kettle corn and we got connected with the Minnesota Vikings because they have training camp in Mankato, Minnesota, and we gifted them hundred and twenty bags of kettle corn because we just thought we wanted the players and coaches to just eat it and the next day the sales and marketing team came back to us and said, um, you know, players, everybody loves it. You know, are are you interested in being the sort of the kettle corn of the Minnesota Vikings? And we were like, okay, we thought we made it, you know. <laughs> what it meant, you know, was another eight thousand dollar investment. We saw it as a platform to sell our product and also to kind of get exposure for what we were doing. And so we started selling in front of the Metrodome every home game for Minnesota Vikings, which was in blizzards. But it gave us an opportunity to um, be seen by a broader audience, and that then led to an inquiry from Lunds and Byerleys. And we went into stores in 2004 in three Lunds and Byerleys specialty grocery stores and a food co-op, and we delivered in the back door 
in our minivan and we demoed every weekend. We moved the operation, obviously, indoors, found a small commercial kitchen and started building a business. How did you learn about marketing and branding? Was it kind of on-the-job training? Yes, absolutely on-the-job training. We called our little kettlecorn tent, like kettlecorn cafe. And the way we thought about marketing at that point was to have contact, our product to have contact with people through samples or through experiencing it. And I think having that direct feedback just helped teach us like what they say makes a difference in our business, right? Like we took that feedback from them. They're like, oh, this is a little too salty. Okay, we'll fix it for you because we could do it right then and there. We learned to listen to consumers early on. And it was a valuable tenet in our culture as we grew. In terms of like branding, positioning, messaging, that was an ongoing learning experience for me. And I learned it from a lot of the professionals that we worked with through creative agencies and strategy agencies and branding agencies and our internal team. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a vision or have a value and they don't really know how to articulate it well and so that the creative agencies can deliver on it. And I think that I learned over time how to articulate the brief to get what I wanted out there, what I felt was impactful and, you know, in this give and take that happens between brands and agencies. And one of the first learnings I had was about context. When they said, you got to name your product if you're going to put it on the shelf. And we were like, well, what's popcorn called? We hadn't paid any attention, right? So we went to the grocery store. We went online. We said, okay, what's popcorn called? At that time, so 2003, 2004, it was called Orville, Vicks, Cracker Jack, Dale and Thomas, Harry and David. And then there were a few that had like locations, regional sort of locations. And and then, you know, there was the microwave. But in the ready to eat, I was like, oh. There's no popcorn women here. And I was kind of, where is the popcorn women? And, and so we decided we wanted to be different. We need to have equal representation on shelf. So we named it Angie's. And so what we were doing at the time was sort of branding and positioning based on our values, but didn't realize the implications of that moving forward. But that was the foundation that we used for everything. We had sort of created this female representation on the shelf. And then when it came to like, hey, we want to look at rebranding, re-messaging, re-everything, instead of being artisanal and all that sort of look that happened in the early 2000s and really, really wanted to be something more. This is when we took the brief to, you know, an agency and said, can you help us bring this to life? Because here's how we're thinking about it now. And learned a lot. And at some point, you changed your brand from Angie's Kettle Corn to Boom Chicka Pop. What was involved in that transition, and, and how did you pick the name Boom Chicka Pop? To differentiate yourself, look at where your product lives, you know, and how does it measure up against where it lives on the shelf? I, I preferred to stand out. I wanted something unique, and I didn't want to have a product that looked like everything else or sounded like everything else. That was sort of the tenet of doing Angie's Kettle Court. And so in 2011, when we were like, we need to refresh here and you know, up until that point, a lot of natural and organic products only lived in the natural and organic aisle. That's where they lived. It was kind of a dead space in the grocery store. And we were happy to be there because we felt like it also influenced how people thought about our product and where we should be living. But everything kind of looked the same. Everything kind of looked beige. Everything kind of looked artisanal. 
I would go into grocery stores and just look and study what was there. And what I began to notice is at that time, a lot of these very permissive snacks, like really good stuff, here's your good potato chips. And it was all in sort of this masculine color palette, which happened to perpetuate some artisanal permissive kind of look. And there were other branded sort of strategies that looked like they were aimed and speaking to children. And those were very sort of playful and obviously aimed at children. And then the snacks that were aimed at women just sort of assumed that women were on a diet by their naming and the way that they talked about food. And I'm like, hey, hold on. Talk to me (laughs) in the same way that you're talking to everybody else. And I also noticed the feminine wasn't really celebrated in food. Popcorn became sort of a calorie play in 2011, and it sort of shifted from movie to an indulgence to like a, here's a healthy sort of snack that you can eat. And so it started getting positioned as diet, women's snack food kind of. And and I said, okay, we're going to deliver all of that, but we're going to celebrate the feminine. We are going to be loud and we're going to be proud and we're going to come from a position of empowerment, right? Like an energy and not a diminishment of the feminine in food and on the snack shelf. And so give us what that looks like. And we worked with a creative agency that delivered this bright yellow package and about five different names that it could be. And they were four names that I think were boring. And one of those names that wasn't boring was Boom Chicka Pow Pow. And we all just like suddenly there is energy in the room. Like we all laughed, oh, boom, chicka, pow, pow, you know. And so they came back with boom, chicka, pop. We launched it in May of 2012, the yellow bag. And within four months, that yellow bag became our number one selling grocery SKU. When we launched it, we weren't certain we were going to change the entire branding of the business, but Target let us do some testing. We switched the same recipe, switched out one skew at a time in the new packaging, and they would sell two and three times velocity in the new packaging. And I just wanted people to stand in front of it and be curious about what it is, to pick it up, to elicit some sort of energy and curiosity. And that's what happened. How can a company know when it's time for a rebrand? Are there certain signs that indicate that you might want to refresh your brand? It's one perpetual refresh. I mean, Things move so fast, you got to stay relevant. In terms of refreshing the brand position, strategy, all that stuff, I think you have a course, this is who you are. But I think all the time you have to respond to consumers' demands to stay relevant in the marketplace. And so that was one of the tenants that we used to say is let's get gluten free certified. Okay, so if we're going to change the packaging, what else are we looking at here? Any necessity here? to change the package, what else do we see and look at in a way that we haven't seen and looked at it before? Because when you do packaging, you get so close to it, you can't see its flaws. And so we always try to put it in front of other people, people that have never seen it before, so we could see it through the eyes of other people. And that always helped us hone our messaging and refresh the way we communicated to consumers. And it was a continual refresh for us. I don't think any brand is ever static because people aren't. You've said that having a rich internal environment has been important to your success. What does that look like? A rich internal environment has to be able to tolerate disagreement or opposing opinions. And there has to be a way that people can talk 
and bring their best self and their best energy to work and to spend it there and their creative selves and the part of themselves that makes them feel like they're relevant and worthwhile. And and I think that happens when you create an environment and a culture that is both physically and emotionally safe for everybody. That means everybody valued. We just sort of expanded this in a little bit of a different way when we started thinking about, you know, food safety on the production, because we are primarily an operation to start with. And I came from a psychiatric nursing background in healthcare, and, you know, that's sort of a given is how you operate in those environments. We needed some structure in place, and we needed safety for people to bring themselves to work. We needed open communication. We needed people to feel like they could be who they are and still work together in a unified way and bring their differences to the workplace and feel accepted. Also, you just have to show your employees concretely that you um, value them. And that means communicating their value to you um, directly. It means paying them well. It means bonusing them well. It means if we succeed, they succeed. You know, it's setting them up for a career that maybe is beyond us, even though we'd hate to lose them. (laughs) We just want our people to do well. What message do you have for credit union marketers and business developers? Well, are they working with entrepreneurs? Are they working with startups? I think the message is be patient with them, help them understand the importance of strategy and the value of their ideas that maybe are rich with creative work and But entrepreneurs don't really know how to maybe articulate it well unless they've been in marketing before. So help them understand their role in writing a great brief, you know, to help build the brand for them. Because entrepreneurs know they want to do that. And I have learned the value of just extraordinary design work and extraordinary strategy work and the value of that. And and look, we probably doubled the value. We did double the value of our company in three years between 2014 and 2017. We're always good at sales and execution, but we then focused and invested in branding, marketing, enhancing, supporting the brand and the messaging. And I'm going to say that doubled the value of our company when we sold the ConAgra. And I will say that ConAgra, Big Food, is looking for unique, meaningful brands. And that's what attracted them. And we couldn't have gotten there had we not had creative people to help us get there. Creative people play just this amazing role in helping us achieve what our life's work is. John Paul Gonzalez is widely recognized for inspiring the New York Giants football team to its most recent Super Bowl victory with his philosophy of being all in. But as you'll hear, this mindset has its origins in the least likely of places. It's funny when uh, some of my students or other people ask me like, hey, how do I get started in this whole thing? I honestly tell them, uh, go to jail. (laughs) You know, just go to a place in your community where honestly, not a lot of people want to go because you'll find that you'll get a lot of opportunity there. And there's usually not a whole lot of barriers because unfortunately, a lot of people aren't, that's not their first stop when it comes to their mind of how to go up a ladder. But usually that's one of the best stops you can go to is just kind of starting from the bottom and understanding, you know, hey, how can I help those who are most in need? How can I help those who, you know, maybe a lot of people have given up on before? And if you can really operate in that space and begin to understand and not just sympathize, but empathize, then I think it's can put a really great foundation going forward. 
So that was kind of the start of your all-in philosophy? It kind of all began there. And then from there is where the, um, one of the representatives from the New York Giants heard about it. And it actually, one of the detention centers that we were going to for the youth was actually half a mile away from the Giants practice facility. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that they were paying attention or they had individuals that were involved in the detention center there. But, you know, eventually three years later, I get a phone call I don't expect and it's, uh, it's the New York Giants. And they're saying, hey, you know, we're, we're hearing about the work you're doing with the youth, using athletics. And you uh, don't know this, but we have some connections in there. And we just thought it'd be great for the players to hear about. So will you come, you know, speak to us night before we play the Jets? At no point was that the motivation for me to work with these youth was, oh, well, I hope someone hears about it. I mean, I probably thought that was the last place anybody would hear about it, uh, you know, such a isolated area. But I think it's interesting when we look back at our careers and even our social lives and our relationships in our lives, it's interesting the things that when we look back on turned out to be the most impactful are usually the ones going into it we thought were probably maybe the most minimal. But it's just interesting how everything kind of connects to everything else. And, you know, we never know who's watching or who's listening. And, you know, it's kind of like that whole Wonderful Life, you know, movie during uh, during the Christmas season is just, you know, it's it's amazing how much one person's life can impact somebody else. How do you apply this philosophy to your own life? I always like to think of it as a, you know, as you said, a philosophy, a lifestyle. You know, some teams and some different corporations that I've worked with in the past, they like to keep it more on the slogan side. And I said, you know, I understand that if that's part of the, you know, the um, first quarter strategy, you know, for to uh, raise, you know, raise the profit margin, you know, help sales increase. I get that. But I said, you know, I think it has the ability to be so much more, but it always starts from the inside out. And it always starts for what we do in the doors of our own homes before we enter the doors of our, of our workplaces. And so I'd say for me, that's where it starts. It really starts with me and my faith. It really starts with how I am as a, as a husband, you know, as a father. And it's the, it's the little things, you know, it's coming home and being tired and, you know, as menial as it sounds, it's, it's the dishes in the sink and knowing my wife is, you know, seven months pregnant saying, you know what, I got to wake up early tomorrow and work with the students, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it later. But it's like, no, let me take care of that now because I know it's, it's small, but it makes a difference waking up in the morning to an empty sink. And so it's, it's still things like that or, you know, reading to my daughter before bed and instead of just saying, okay, all right, good night, kiss on the forehead. It really starts from there. You know, I think one of the great things that I remember hearing from one of the players, specifically from that Giants team, is uh, audacious as it sounded at the time. He told me he got a tattoo. Um, Antrell, who was a cornerback on the team, and it's the words all in all, across his chest. And at first I was like, oh, I don't, that's a little extreme. I don't, you know, I don't really know if you need to do that, Bart. But uh, he said, you know what, I'm starting to realize that when, you know, if I want to be really committed to something, you know, it's, it's much less about putting on a T-shirt that everybody can see and more about what I do when no one's watching. And I thought he, you know, he really summed it up perfectly. And yeah, that is it. It's the little things we do. It's the integrity. Even if, you know, quote unquote, no one will find out, or even if quote unquote, it's not our job. It's those little things we do. And we begin to implement the small things. Everything begins to follow after that. Because like we said before, unfortunately in our lives, we don't have neon signs above the most pivotal points that say, hey, pay attention here. This is going to be really important. Or, hey, don't miss that game with your daughter because she's not going to forget this or whatever it is. We don't have those signs. So it's, I see it kind of as it's hard, but it's also freedom and knowing that when we're giving our best, wherever we're put, we don't have to have that fear of regret of think, ah, oh, maybe I missed this or missed that. It's like, no, I'm giving my absolute best, even though it's uncomfortable, it's difficult. 
but I'm not going to miss those opportunities, you know, as far as it depends on me, because uh, I made that choice when I woke up this morning. What do you see as, as some of the biggest barriers to motivation and commitment? I think it's the idea of commitment being comfortable, when in reality, commitment is usually the biggest risk. It's a lot easier to hop around from project to project or thing to thing uh, when it starts to, you know, maybe lose its luster or maybe it starts to hit that second year where the newness fades off and now you're getting into the nitty gritty and the, the ugly parts of things. And I think it's understanding that commitment is a risk. And it's actually, a, in most instances, in, in my experience, a lot harder to stay committed than it is to, to kind of just say, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm done with that. You know, after it stops you becoming exciting or, you know, relationships start to, you know, start to see people's other side. I kind of equate it to, um, essentially I was speaking for the, um, for the Navajo Reservation Educational Board for the different high schools in Northern Arizona. And it's interesting, they took us to a meteorite site one day in between speaking to the students and the teachers and the staff. And the amazing thing about a meteor is that it makes this impact on the ground traveling extraordinarily fast, 26,000 miles an hour, which is the equivalent of going from New York to LA in about five minutes. But one of the things when a meteorite hits in the Arizona desert, when we stood on the edge of the crater, is that there's all these white rocks that are all around the edge of the crater. And Arizona desert is traditionally red across. And what happens is when a meteor hits that fast, all the bedrock comes to the surface. And I kind of see that, you know, that equates very closely to commitment and the fact that when you start to go deep with people, I think so many times in our society, we always, we get lured into the idea that we want to spread fast and, you know, cover large areas regionally. But the amazing thing is when you start to go deep, you'll go wide naturally, but what's very deep beneath comes to the surface and comes to the forefront that everybody can see. And I think that's, that's telling of those who stay committed when they start seeing the, um, the not so pretty sides of society, the not so glamorous parts of leadership. It's a challenge of do I stay committed to these individuals or do I stay committed to this team or do I try to walk out the door or plan my exit strategy? And I think that's one of the most telling things about being all in is seeing that and saying, no, I know that's a weakness. And I fully understand my weaknesses because I stuck it out for two, three, four years. And now I'm committed to how can we make those weaknesses strengths and how can we make those strengths even greater? So I think that's probably the biggest challenge that I see is, you know, sticking with it, even though that is a risk and it might not be as glamorous, but that's when real change happens is when individuals know you're going to be committed to them, even despite their, you know, for use of the term pimples and despite their ugly side. And I see that in my students is when they know you're really committed to them, even when they've messed up, even when they've, you know, haven't performed the highest, even when they lost their temper or they got suspended or they got that detention and you're still there, not absolving the, the consequence and not absolving the, the discipline that will be required in order to change those behaviors, but you're still there. That's a powerful, powerful statement that I think can impact individuals and communities for years to come when they know there's that bedrock of trust for them. What do you do to stay motivated? That's a great question. And that's something that I always talk to my students about because a lot of times they'll, you know, they naturally assume, oh, hey, well, you know, you're always all in, you know, you're always committed. It's easy for you. And I'm usually quite honest with them and say, you know, I never feel all in because the whole entire idea of being committed is very rarely a feeling. It's an action. And after we take action, then the feeling comes. It's much like, a, much like working out. 
very rarely do you feel extremely motivated at 5.30 a.m. to get up to go for a run. But it's in the process of running that our bodily naturally releases endorphins. And then we get that runner's high. We feel great 20 minutes in, but it's funny how you never get the endorphin release at 5.30 when you need to wake up. And I think that's that's kind of much of the same in motivation. You know, there, there's things that we can do to to remind us of the past, to remind us of our principles. For me, you know, personally, it's my faith. That's a very big part of my life. But it's then taking action in those steps that then helps us remind like, wow, this is why I do what I do. This is why I want to go that extra mile for that member of my community. This is why I want to go that extra mile for these students, for these parents. And I think the same thing applies, you know, like I said, personally, for me, just in the privilege it is to share for different institutions that affect these communities as credit unions and that they understand that it's about people. Numbers are a part of it. And numbers are a part of you know, my strategy as well and data-driven instruction, finding different ways that I can educate my students and provide them opportunities when they finish high school. But I think, you know, when we don't make sure we stop at the number, but we make sure we always realize it's a mother, you know, it's a father applying for that loan or for that mortgage payment or opening up that account for the first time and keep that personal realization of who they are and what it looks like for them on a day-to-day basis. That's what helps me stay motivated. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher Radio.